Tantor Audio, a division of Recorded Books, presents Mormonism and White Supremacy, American Religion and the Problem of Racial Innocence, by Joanna Brooks, narrated by Pam Ward. Chapter 1. American Christianity, White Supremacy, and Racial Innocence. This book seeks to instigate soul-searching, academic, institutional, and personal, on the matter of how American Christianity has contributed to white supremacy. When I use the term white supremacy, I refer not only to the grossest forms of racist terrorism, but also to the entire system of ideas, beliefs, and practices that give white people better chances based on perceived skin color and ancestry. Racism is not a character flaw or extremist conduct. Racism is the centuries-old construct that marked people with dark skin as available for exploitation, for advantage-taking of their lands, labors, bodies, cultures, and so forth. White supremacy is not just torches at Charlottesville. It is the fact that a black woman in New York City is far more likely to die in connection with pregnancy and childbirth than a white woman, even if she has comparable access to health care insurance, and education. It is the fact that the average black family holds a small fraction of the wealth, assets, not income, the average white family holds, due in large part to slavery and past discrimination in education, employment, housing, and banking. It is the fact that African-American men are disfranchised and incarcerated at astonishingly disproportionate rates, due in large part to laws that effectively continued the racial domination of slavery beyond its abolition. It is the fact that African and Latinx refugees are being held in indefinite detention or returned summarily to death threats in countries destabilized to the point of low-level civil war by American foreign policy. It is the fact that minoritized people must do additional spiritual and emotional work every day to safeguard their wholeness and the wholeness of their children. And it is the fact that these and so many other systematic inequities persist while white people sit in church and call it good. It is easy to see the torches at Charlottesville and resort to our Sunday meetings to pray. It is not easy to look at our Sunday meetings and see how over time they have conditioned us to accept black death and suffering by other peoples of color. As a person of faith and as a scholar of religion, race, gender, and culture in America, I see a role for scholarship and teaching in unsettling and interjecting urgency into conversations around religion and race in America. When I look back, I can see that historical scholarship has focused on the clearest examples of good and evil, on the ways religion has been mobilized in the service of anti-racist activism, especially by black churches, or conversely in the service of explicit forms of white racism, especially among white evangelicals in the American South. But given that the definition of white supremacy has evolved to incorporate the quotidian systems of white privilege that structure American life everywhere, 
It seems to me that we need to evolve our discussion of the role American Christianity has played in securing and sustaining racial privilege more broadly. The Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. famously called 11 o'clock Sunday morning the most segregated hour in Christian America. Fifty years later, the Pew Foundation's American Religious Landscape Survey found that Protestant denominations like Presbyterianism, Episcopalianism, Congregationalism, Methodism, Lutheranism, and Mormonism still made up the bottom ranks of American religions in terms of racial and ethnic diversity. While American Catholics were 59% white and American Muslims were 38% white, Pew found, mainline Protestants were 86% white and Mormons were 85% white. How do we understand this pervasive racial segregation of American Christianity? Is it an accident? I would like us to press deeper to investigate American Christianity as a mass culture that, even when it has not appeared explicitly concerned with race as such, has in fact contributed essentially to the establishment and maintenance of white supremacy broadly defined. The entire system of legal, social, cultural, and economic advantage that has benefited white lives at the expense of black and brown ones. Progressive leaders and scholars of white American Christianity like Jim Wallace and Jennifer Harvey have urged white Christians to recognize racism as a national original sin that must be repented of through not only reconciliation but also reparation. My goal is to move the conversation yet another step by exploring how the predominantly white venues and denominations through which we have pursued the sacred and hope to pursue mercy and justice have themselves contributed, if unknowingly, to white supremacy. We can start with the way American Christianity teaches its white practitioners about what it means to be good or moral and how it rewards that goodness. Christianity takes as its central theological concern sin and redemption. Consequently, how American churches teach their adherents about sin, through instruction and through ritual, exerts tremendous influence on our individual and collective capacities for moral reasoning and problem-solving. As the legacy-majority religion in the United States— American Christianity has effectively furnished our national language for judging value, worthiness, guilt, and innocence, and for establishing moral priorities to guide the allocation of resources and the application of power. It has instilled in white American imaginations notions of the good, the holy, and the evil that are permeated with racial privilege and fear. Predominantly white American churches have also fostered identity-based social networks among whites that have generated opportunity and advantage for white people. For these reasons, racial segregation of American Christianity must be understood not only as a testament to the powerful role of black churches in creating domains for the experience of sovereignty, for your self-expression, and collective and individual care, 
but also as a reflection of the role church spaces have played for whites to comfortably experience the same, often in the service of white privilege, which is to say, white supremacy. I am particularly interested in white American Christianity as a technology for the production of what scholars describe as racial innocence. The option to believe that one is innocent, morally exempt, of systematic and pervasive anti-black racism is a privilege cultivated among, by, and for the benefit of American whites. James Baldwin observed the willed innocence of white America in his 1962 letter to his nephew, My Dungeon Shook, published first in Progressive Magazine and then in 1963 in The Fire Next Time. They have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. One can be, indeed one must strive to become, tough and philosophical concerning destruction and death, for this is what most of mankind has been best at since we have heard of war. Remember I said most of mankind, but it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. There is no reason for you to try to become like white men, and there is no basis whatever for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. The really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them, and accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope. They are, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. White American Christianity has done a great deal to reassure white people and maintain us in our misunderstanding. It has sown into our imaginations a deep association of whiteness, as color, as symbol, as identity, with innocence, and blackness with guilt. It has engaged Americans in performances and rituals designed to convey a sense of absolution or transcendence without moral responsibility. White American Christianity has also advanced one of the constituting mechanisms of whiteness by creating spaces that do not require white people to name their whiteness and acknowledge their privilege. According to American Studies scholars like George Lipsitz and Anne Ducille, whiteness derives power from the fact that it does not name or acknowledge itself, but rather assumes an unnamed role as an organizing principle of social relations and a driver of value. Whiteness thus serves as its own alibi. It excuses itself. It refuses to speak its own name, to make itself invisible, and exculpate itself from agency and responsibility. Moreover, Christian concepts of innocence, sin, and retribution or redemption have been essential to legal reasoning around racial issues in the United States. There was a time early in the Christian movement when sin was broadly understood as a collective condition 
to be redeemed as gathered-in communities transacted with God and each other through the medium of Jesus Christ. Over time, and especially with the coming of Enlightenment rationalism, prevailing concepts of sin in American Christianity shifted dramatically, so that it became somewhat normal to think of sin as an individual act to be expiated through transaction with the Church. This greatly diminished understanding of sin was useful to a white American nationalism predicated on the belief that God had put white people on this land in a state of innocence to fulfill a divinely appointed mission. It allowed mainstream white American Christians to simplify morality, to associate it with the unknowing blamelessness of children, rather than the hard-won wisdom of adults who make difficult choices. Indeed, as critical race theorists have shown, the Protestantism-influenced formulation of moral wrong as individual sin requiring remedy provided the framework for the U.S. Supreme Court's deliberation of cases involving school desegregation and affirmative action remedies to past wrongs. Unfortunately, this simplistic, incidental view of sin is totally insufficient and inappropriate, not only to capturing the systemic and collective dimensions of racism, but also to the fullness of Christian theology as well. A more robust Christian conceptualization of sin would hold that it is a deadly but structuring condition of mortality, just as racism is a deadly but structuring condition of life in the United States. This more robust view of racism as sin would require individuals and institutions to conduct a moral accounting, not only of their own conscious acts of harm or injustice, but also of the way they have participated in and benefited from the entire system of harm and injustice that has meant death and suffering to others. As legal scholar Thomas Ross asks, What white person is innocent, if innocence is defined as the absence of advantage at the expense of others? By refusing a more complicated understanding of racism— as a perpetuated and transhistorical system, judges and U.S. Supreme Court justices have created the conditions for treating individual instances of segregation or discrimination as disconnected from earlier historical instances. This is a pattern legal scholar Neil Gotanda identified in Chief Justice Earl Warren's opinion in Brown v. Board of Education, 1955, which treated Brown as though it were entirely unrelated to the issues raised in Plessy, 1896. Cutting off the moral, social, economic, and political ties to the past, the court thus affords whites, according to Gotanda, the innocence of a new beginning. The logic of the court allows each petitioner to present themselves as individuals outside of history not as citizens whose standing obtains and takes shape in relation to fellow citizens with a shared history. Adopting a more responsible notion of innocence may also have prevented the court from barring even limited legal remedies, like affirmative action, 
on the grounds that they harm white innocents who bear no direct responsibility for racism, as the U.S. Supreme Court found in several high-profile cases in the 1990s. A simplistic version of white Protestantism has supplied U.S. institutions with a limited moral reasoning that stands in place of and prevents the kind of collective work that would be required to consciously dismantle the legal, economic, and social infrastructure of white supremacy. White American Christian churches have provided spaces where, without acknowledging white racism, white people can take refuge and experience belonging in shared white identity, build relationships and develop intimacies with people like themselves, cultivate opportunities from these relationships, and do so in the name of God. They have offered rights, performances, and salvific formulas that, in exchange for a specific individual performance of piety, typically defined by heteronormatively married sexual monogamy, polite manners, and deference to authority, promise moral exculpation from the wrongs of history. They have also, through the auspices of missionary work, sustained white supremacy by directing the energies of well-meaning white people into efforts to save darker-skinned peoples, whether by evangelism or by charity, without recognizing their own role in creating global inequities and conditions of deprivation. And in its construction of morality as a matter of being good, White American Protestantism has played a role in the maintenance of white supremacy and structural racism by appealing to what Barbara Applebaum identifies as white desires for moral goodness and innocence. A more robust form of morality might recenter, Applebaum suggests, around values of uncertainty, carefulness, reflection, humility, openness to criticality, Willingness to defer validation, listening, tolerance for discomfort, and gratitude for experiences that radically surprise, disrupt, or ambush and transform consciousness. In its mainstream institutional variants, white American Christianity has largely failed to cultivate in its adherents the sobriety and capacity for tolerating and learning from disruption and discomfort essential to dismantling structures of power. It has, in fact, stood in the way of and crowded out that more developed moral sense, like a cowbird in a robin's nest. Asking what role religion has played in advancing white supremacy will require an interrogation of white silences in the effort to sound out the individual choices and tacit agreements that undergird white privilege. The work of interrogating white silences to understand how they work has been a matter of survival for people of color in the United States. As W.E.B. Du Bois wrote in 1920, I know many souls that toss and whirl and pass, but none there are that intrigue me more than the souls of white folk. I see these souls undressed and from the back and side. I see the working of their entrails. I know their thoughts, and they know that I know. This knowledge makes them now embarrassed, 
now furious. This work entered the realm of academic scholarship with books like Winthrop Jordan's landmark study White Over Black, 1968, and Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination, 1992. Calling out what Martin Luther King Jr. described in his letter from Birmingham jail, the appalling silences of good people, especially white people who frame their goodness in moral and religious terms, has been the work of black theologians like the late James Cone, who in 2004 asked very directly why white theologians, too, committed the sin of silence. Few American theologians have even bothered to address white supremacy as a moral evil and as a radical contradiction of our humanity and religious identities. White theologians and philosophers write numerous articles and books on theodicy, asking why God permits massive suffering, but they hardly ever mention the horrendous crimes whites have committed against people of color in the modern world. Why do white theologians ignore racism? This is a haunting question, especially since a few white scholars in other disciplines, such as sociology, literature, history, and anthropology, do engage with the phenomenon of racism. Why not theologians? Shouldn't they be the first to attack this evil? Cohn extended this line of questioning in his landmark book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which included an indictment of the arrogance of white Christians who pretended piety while steadfastly refusing to take on moral reckoning with the suffering of their African-American neighbors. And even the limited moral vision and exasperatingly safe take on Christian morality, offered by white theologians like the esteemed Reinhold Niebuhr, if Niebuhr, according to Cohn, held his privileged place as a globally recognized theologian in his office at Union Theological Seminary, without seriously reckoning with the death and damage incurred by white supremacy, perhaps it falls to thinkers and writers outside religious institutions to do this hard, searching work. Given the historic role of universities as seminaries for the unorthodox and dissenting, American studies and religious studies can, and I hope will, take up this work of understanding how mainstream American Christian traditions have contributed to the maintenance of white supremacy. I hope that others working in different domains of white American Christian tradition will ask how rituals like confession, baptism, and worship produce public spectacles of innocence and redemption— construct moral responsibility, and promise a way out of the deeply complex and co-imbricated histories of racialization and discrimination. Many of these rights have been marked as outside the domain of politics and, hence, race. But to what extent must we read this referral elsewhere as the consequence of a mutually negotiated agreement between religion's providers and its adherents, to produce a form of comfort that leaves privilege undisturbed and structures unchanged. In the United States, is it possible to speak of religion as such on its own terms, as innocent, a given fact, an antecedent condition, 
and racism as its sequel? Or has religion in the United States been developed as a set of practices in the service of racial hegemony? Either its resistance, its promotion, or its quiet maintenance. Research on the black church leaves little question that the black church was the product of American racialization and racism. Does it not reinscribe narratives of ahistoricity and white innocence to assume that white churches are not, to a great extent, the same? In this book, I will pursue these questions through the medium of Mormon history and culture. I grew up a true-believing, white-identified Mormon girl in a religion and a region carved up by anti-black racial segregation. I was born a fourth-generation Angelino, with Mormon pioneer and mixed-race Oki ancestry, in Linwood, California, a predominantly black municipality of Los Angeles, and raised in white flight, Southern California suburbs. I was taught to see Los Angeles and its surrounding environs street by street, freeway by freeway, as safe and unsafe zones, so inscribed with red lines drawn by mortgage lenders and insurance companies marking out neighborhoods too black to merit investment. But I was not taught to see the black and white dividing lines within the warm and loving Mormon community including Native Americans, Latinos, and Pacific Islanders, that defined my life, though those lines were most assuredly in place. I was not taught to see the near-total absence of African Americans in the pews at my local congregation on Sundays. I was not taught to see the near-total absence of men of color from the leadership ranks of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Even though I studied the pictures of these prophets, seers, revelators, apostles, and seventies as published semi-annually in the LDS Church News, and I was most certainly not taught the history that stood behind the Church's century-long exclusion of people of black African descent from priesthood ordination and sacred temple rites which ended on June 8, 1978, when I was six years old. In the decades after its end, I would hear many rationalizations for the ban, an allegedly canonized mishmash of Old Testament genealogies, names like Cain, Ham, and Egyptus, and speculations about the quality of spirits destined to come to this earth with melanated skin. At some point... I can't pinpoint it now, but assuredly it was an embarrassingly belated one. These stories started feeling wrong, but I had nothing to replace them with. Through four years of 6 a.m. seminary classes in high school, even through four years of study as a scholarship student at church-owned Brigham Young University, I did not encounter a more realistic accounting of how Mormonism absorbed anti-black racism into its very marrow, at great cost to itself. Despite focusing my own doctoral and professional research on race and religion in the United States, it has taken me many years and a lot of searching 
to begin to get a grip on the dynamics of white racism and white supremacy in the Mormon context. First, I had to develop an understanding of racism, not just as an individual character flaw, but as a system of ideas, beliefs, and practices that divides people and gives some people better life chances, opportunities to live a happy, healthy life based on their skin color and ancestry. I had to realize that individuals are born into these systems, absorb them, learn to operate within them, and make choices over time that will build them or dismantle them. My initial education in this took about a decade. It continues every day. Then, I had to teach myself the history of Mormonism's specifically anti-black racism, studying an archive of independent scholarship published largely in venues unsupported by the LDS Church, and unfamiliar to, if not openly disregarded by, virtually everyone in the conservative Southern California Mormon communities where I grew up. Reading historiographic scholarship by Newell Bringhurst, Lester Bush, Dennis Lithgow, Eugene England, Armand Moss, Ronald Coleman, Edward Kimball, and Mark Grover. Then, through the public writing and activism of Darius Gray, Margaret Young, Zandra Rains, Tamu Smith, Darren Smith, and Janan Graham Russell. And finally, through a new generation of scholars, including Paul Reeve, Max Mueller, and Amy Tanner Theriot, I pieced together for myself a history. The basic outlines of that history are these. From the 1850s until 1978, the Church did not permit men of black African descent to be ordained to the lay priesthood available to all other religiously observant LDS males over the age of 12 including men of color of indigenous American, Latino, Asian, Polynesian, and Fijian descent. And it did not permit men and women of black African descent full access to marriage and other sacred rites performed in LDS temples. The ban did not extend to other peoples of color, including indigenous peoples of North and South America and the Pacific, Latinos, or Asians. LDS Church founder Joseph Smith, Jr., had permitted ordination of black men, Elijah Abel or Abel's, Kwaku Walker Lewis, to the priesthood in the 1830s and 1840s. But the church's second president, Brigham Young, announced in 1852 that such ordinations would no longer take place. Through the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, LDS church leaders rebuffed appeals from individual black members for priesthood and temple access and reconstructed Young's policy as the timeless will of God, despite documentation of black ordination in the 1830s and 1840s. In the face of public protests and, more saliently, under internal pressure driven by church growth in Brazil— where concepts of black identity diverged from those held by the white North American church leadership, the ban was finally rescinded in June 1978 by LDS Church President Spencer W. Kimball. 
But the array of official and folk defenses of the ban as the will of God, revealed to inerrant Mormon prophets, was not addressed until 2013, when the Church quietly published on its website a professionally researched essay on race and the priesthood. The core ideas of this essay have never been presented in essential venues like the Church's worldwide semi-annual general conference, and no institutional effort has been made to address, let alone dismantle, persistent structures of white privilege and complicity that initiated and sustained the ban. African-American Mormons, over time, have organized fellowship groups like Genesis to provide support and spiritual refuge against the anti-black racism they have encountered on a day-to-day basis from white Mormons, even in the faith's most sacred settings. But the problem of anti-black racism as a system that degraded the faith and its adherents has not been systematically addressed. To this day, church-attending Mormons report that they continue to hear from their fellow congregants in Sunday meetings that African Americans were the accursed descendants of Cain, whose spirits, due to their lack of spiritual metal in a pre-mortal existence, were destined to come to earth with a curse of black skin. One can make this claim in many Mormon Sunday schools without fearing an adverse comment. In some congregations, people are more likely to encounter pushback if they argue that the ban was a product of human racism, that it was wrong, and that it had always been wrong. Like most difficult subjects in Mormon history and practice, the anti-black priesthood and temple ban has been managed carefully in LDS institutional settings with a combination of avoidance, denial, selective truth-telling, determined silence, and opportunistic redirection. Most white Mormons have believed and hoped that by looking forward and doing better, the ban and its legacy would take care of themselves. We told ourselves that new, more cosmopolitan, albeit white, church leaders would endorse tolerance, love, and compassion. Newly sensitized church media would begin to feature images of Mormonism's growing diversity, and old doctrinal folklore would fade out with the passing generations. The past did not have to be reckoned with, undone, or confronted. It could simply be outlived if we turned our faces toward Zion. But what this theory of change did not account for was the way that the institutional preference for silence, or near silence, on difficult issues like white racism, created a context that placed the burden on members of color for raising consciousness and making themselves feel at home in sometimes discouraging spiritual environments. It freed white Mormons of responsibility for self-education, searching, reflection, and personal and institutional change, Most distressingly, it allowed openly racist white Mormons to feel comfortable, if not emboldened, in Mormon religious contexts. This fact became strikingly clear 
after the election of President Donald J. Trump in November 2016. Trump's unabashed alliance-making with white supremacist or alt-right partisans, combined with the affordances of digital media, created opportunities for extremist white supremacist Mormons to reach significant audiences. A small group of extremist white supremacist Mormon media personalities took to blogs, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, creating racist memes, enlisting LDS scriptures and statements and images from LDS church leaders past and present in the service of a radical white nationalism. In May 2017, Mormons who identified with the alt-right convened a hashtag True Blue Mormon conference featuring bloggers such as A Thoughtful Wife. And in June 2017, LDS alt-right bloggers organized to attack and demean via Twitter black LDS anti-racism advocates. In August 2017, the LDS white supremacist social media figure Ayla Stewart, who writes as A Thoughtful Wife, was invited and scheduled to speak at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. She ultimately withdrew from the event, but in the days after the rally's deadly violence, a thoughtful wife continued to misappropriate official LDS church statements to claim divine sanction for white nationalism. This extremism is not representative of mainstream American Mormonism, but it does reflect the extent to which mainstream American Mormonism is a comfortable habitat for white supremacy, from its everyday expressions in white privilege to the extremist expressions of figures like Stuart. This book seeks to use the tools of historical research and critical analysis to identify how anti-black racism took hold in Mormonism. I want to state at the outset that I recognize that Mormonism's handling of race, gender, and sexuality are deeply intertwined, and that there are also histories specific to Mormonism's indigenous communities and non-black communities of color. This book focuses on the history of anti-black racism in Mormonism, because the LDS Church's specifically anti-black segregation of its priesthood and temple rites from the 1850s through the 1970s constitutes a specific archive through which we can begin to understand these interlocked systems in greater depth and detail. I will seek, wherever possible, to highlight the intersections. I should also state that at times... I will write as a person of faith who loves her community and is grateful for its many strengths, even as she feels deeply its shortcomings and stumbling blocks. This may be unsettling to academic readers who prefer the traditional detachment of scholarly writing. At times, I will write as a scholar with an incisive, critical analysis of words and actions by LDS church leaders and members. This may be unsettling to Mormon readers who feel protective of the faith and revere its leaders. I am both a scholar and a person of faith, 
and I strive to use the time-proven tools of my profession, like historiography and critical textual analysis, to inform and advance understanding in my community. What role has anti-black racism and white supremacy played in the growth of the Mormon movement and key institutions of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? In asking this question, I hope to develop insights that can be used to further anti-racist work in the faith community I consider my original home. I hope also to contribute to a critical and intersectional turn in Mormon studies. From its foundations in biography and regional history, Mormon studies has, in the last two decades, entered broader scholarly conversations about American society and culture, particularly the role Mormons have played in the American imagination. Scholars like Kathleen Flake, Terrell Givens, Spencer Fluman, and Patrick Mason have examined the role Mormonism as a white religious minority played in the service of majoritarian ideological purposes. As a limit case for marking the social boundaries of whiteness, the legal status of churches, the idea of consent, and the intellectual value of credibility. To some extent, Mormonism's minority positioning has allowed Mormon studies scholars to benefit from academic multiculturalism on the claim that American experience in general cannot be understood without accounting for the peculiar minority Harold Bloom once heralded as the American religion. But Mormonism's claim to multicultural minority status requires a more nuanced approach. Scholars like Paul Reeve, Max Mueller, Hokulani Aikau, Gina Colvin, and Amanda Hendricks Komodo have more recently examined how Mormonism benefited from its host majoritarian cultures of white supremacy and American imperialism and established as well its own internal logics of white supremacy and American imperialism through its own theological and social mechanisms. And still within these domains, Mormon people of color have appropriated and redirected the facilities and resources of the faith in the pursuit of their own wholeness, happiness, and well-being. As scholarship by Eichau, Colvin, Elise Boxer, and Melissa Inoue has shown, a critical and intersectional Mormon studies must account for all of these dynamics at the faith's historic geographical center in the Intermountain West and at its global peripheries, because the relationship between center and margin is never arbitrary. And when we recenter our focus on the margins, as Bell Hooks has shown, we revolutionize our understanding of the whole. My goal is to offer the history and experience of my own home faith tradition as a case study in how white American Christianity has been constructed in and through white supremacy. My goal is to understand how it was that so egregious a policy as total exclusion of black men and women from priesthood ordination and its ritual correlates took hold. Not all white American Christian denominations had so explicit a policy. 
but most mainline Protestant denominations were, effectually, as exclusive of black participation as my home faith. In its history, I see the following contributory dynamics. In the absence of a defining commitment to racial equity and solidarity, white people in early Mormonism preferred relationships with other whites over the lives and well-being of fellow Mormons or prospective Mormons who happened to be black. As Mormonism institutionalized in church and state, whites extended their preferential relationships with each other to formally exclude blacks from religious and political power, thus discouraging a black presence in Mormonism and rendering black experience abstract and unimportant. As the Church consolidated its theology and history in print, institutional histories abandoned facts in favor of coordinated storytelling that presented black exclusion as the will of God from time immemorial revealed to infallible Mormon prophets. In the service of normalization, assimilation, and growth, LDS church members entered into silent agreements among themselves and with the American public to co-affirm the innocence and moral goodness of the white majority. To maintain control over the narrative, the institutional LDS church and Mormon culture repressed internal critique and dissent. In place of critical self-examination, the LDS Church has used multiculturalism, rhetorical evasion, and duplicity to manage the legacy of Mormon anti-black racism without taking responsibility for it. These dynamics may be, in their particulars, specific to Mormonism, but similar or parallel dynamics can be found across the history of white American Christianity. There is no predominantly white American Christian denomination that is innocent of white privilege and white supremacy. At some moment in the histories of predominantly white denominations, preference for white comfort over black lives took hold. It gained systematicity as denominations institutionalized through formal and informal rules and regulations bureaucratic organization, and acquisition of real property. Systematic theologies, catechisms, study materials, devotionals, and other religious texts generated out of these contexts by white American Christian theologians demonstrate, with few exceptions, a moral indifference to the specific problem of black death and suffering benefiting whites as a collective moral liability. This indifference was reaffirmed and replicated through silent agreements among white Christians who did not hold themselves or each other accountable within or across denominations. White American Christians did risk and give their lives for black emancipatory struggles, but these were acts of individual conscience often carried out in extra-institutional spaces. What institutional concessions and adjustments have come have been largely symbolic or occasional. The passing of resolutions, the promotion of people of color to visible leadership positions, 
multicultural theming and have focused on enabling the institution to preserve its own sense of rectitude. While the more progressive mainline Protestant denominations have attempted a move toward reconciliation, as religion scholar Jennifer Harvey has noted, this effort has foundered, reinscribing again and again the recursivity of white segregation. Harvey argues persuasively that a substantial commitment to righting the wrongs of white supremacy at the expense of black lives would entail reparations, and reparations have not come. In none of this or the chapters that follow do I wish to impugn the character of individuals. Rather, my goal is to assess how systems of inequality take shape through everyday conduct and choices, policies, laws, and theologies, so that we have a better sense of how to dismantle them. No one individually opts into the system of racial privilege that structures everyday life in the United States, but it is up to each of us who want to dismantle racism to begin the work of choosing out. <laughs> 